Good evening. Please be seated. Psalm 119 this evening, our journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation on Sunday nights. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisle right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And that way you can follow along as we study the Word this evening. In addition to listening to it, it has double the effect upon our lives as we let it into the various gates of our heart and our mind, into our ears, into our eyes. This Psalm 119, beautiful psalm, as we have uh, studied it the last couple of times that we've been together on the Sunday night and in our survey of the Scriptures, beautiful psalm whose theme is the Word of God. And so the psalmist expresses his love for God's Word in the psalm, but then he does something that is very, very valuable in my mind. He goes further and tells us very specifically why he loves the Word of God from his own experience. And these aren't superficial kind of reasons. They're very strong, very meaty reasons for his love for the Word of God, what the Word of God had accomplished practically in his life that nothing else in the world can accomplish. And so he writes this beautiful psalm of praise related to the Word of God. It's made up of 22 sections, each section corresponding with uh, one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And we'll continue our course this evening of just taking one great thought out of each of the sections, uh, enlarging on it a little bit rather than uh, going into you know great detail in every line uh, of the psalm. Just by way of review, since we've been separated for a week or so from uh, the psalm, he, he has spoken of his love for the Word of God, number one, because the Word of God produces a blessed life. Amen. The Word of God produces a clean life in the hardest cases of all. The Word of God, number three, provides us with a friendly voice during seasons of human rejection in our life, and everybody experiences that in life. The Word of God revives and it strengthens us. It's a living Word, and it provides us with spiritual strength that you can literally feel inside your spirit as you study the Word of God. It is like Popeye's can of spinach to the child of God. And then the Word of God, it frees us as we saw last time. It frees us from covetousness by constantly reminding us that there is a life to be lived for on the other side of this life, reminding us of eternity. And then obedience to God's Word brings liberty to our lives. People hardly think that law can bring liberty, but you don't have liberty apart from law, not from God's law. And then finally, God's Word provides us with a voice of comfort and a voice of hope uh, in a season where no human voice can ever bring comfort to our lives. And there are those times where we hit the difficult place in life where we must hear from God or we will not experience comfort in our circumstance and in our situation. Perhaps some of you think about this tonight. Pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback Community Church down in Southern California, his uh, son committed suicide in the last couple of days, had really struggled with depression and some mental illness as the family put out the report related to that. 
And uh, seasons like that where we've got to go to the Word of God and say, Lord, I'm thankful for all of these other voices, but I must hear from you at a time like this uh, or I am not going to receive comfort that I need. And so add, please add the Warren family uh, to your prayers uh, at least this coming week. And then we come now to uh, the eighth uh, thing that we want to look at tonight, beginning in verse 57, and that is obedience to God's word will bless me with good companions in life. Let me just say something before we get into uh, this particular section of the psalm. I know I'm preaching to the choir tonight, but it needs to be said. The level of illiteracy among God's people in general, in the body of Christ worldwide, but in the United States, it is unacceptable. It is unacceptable. And we don't even realize the price that we're paying for our ignorance of the Word of God. How many Christians have never read? I'm not, I'm not saying this to condemn a single person. How many Christians have never read the Old Testament and think that it has nothing to offer them in their understanding of Christ, the depth of their relationship with the Lord? And we see this great thing that's been going on. It's been going on as long as I've been a pastor, since 1985. This move away from the teaching of the Word of God into drawing crowds and maintaining crowds through some other means. And it, the, the net effect has been to dumb down the body of Christ at the world's worst time in human history. At a time in which we need to know our Bibles better than ever because of the onslaught of temptation and opportunity to sin, the nearness of the hour of Jesus' return. And by the time we go through all 22 of these sections of this psalm and we get to the end and just taking a snapshot of each section, we say, this is what the Word of God does. This is what the Word of God does. This is what the Word of God uniquely does in a child of God. I've just read seven of those. Take those away from a Christian because a church fails to teach the Word of God. What hope do they have of standing or grow, going deeper in a relationship with the Lord. Now, you may think this is self-serving, but I don't think it is. It might be, but I don't think it is. This is why there is such an emphasis on the teaching of the Word of God in this place. Because I am going to stand before God one day as a pastor... I'm going to face a harsher judgment than most other people in the body of Christ for my faithfulness to declare the whole counsel of God. That is Genesis to Revelation. 
When Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he said, I am innocent of the blood of all men for, that's a reason word, for I have not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God to you. And I just want us to just stop and think about it with real maturity as Christians. The importance of Bible study in church services. The importance of Bible reading and personal Bible study in a child of God. And to realize in spiritual environments that claim to represent Christ, where that is increasingly becoming absent and being replaced by vastly inferior things to realize that something is wrong there and you will not survive that environment. That version of Christianity, which is no version of Christianity, does not produce a disciple that is ready to stand against the things that we stand against and not only survive but then prosper and be an influence related to the culture. I think it's important for us to also realize that as it relates to the study of the Word of God, you watch the immense respect. I am not speaking to any of us in this room at this moment or to us as a church as a whole. But these different environments where people will go into and they have a motivation to learn something, a great motivation to learn something. And so the class is orderly. The person pays a small fortune to get enrolled into the class. Undivided attention reads and reads and studies and crams and tests and all of these things for a a, a laurel an olive wreath for a crown, a perishable crown. And for us as Christians to realize, related to the Word of God, that it is important to bring a want to to the study of the Word of God and to become deep in the Word of God and a student of the Word of God. I'm alarmed. I've been alarmed for 25 years now over this trend. And it's not getting better, it is getting worse. And so the importance of the Word of God to God and to us, and to highly esteem it in that way. So he tells us in verse 57 that obedience to God's Word will bless me with good companions in life. You are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. And then for our purposes and in looking in this section, verse 61, the cords of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight I will rise to give you give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. And then notice specifically once again verse 63. I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. Teach me your statutes. In verse 61 he speaks, the psalmist speaks of the fact that the wicked had set their sights on him. 
and they were trying to trip him up in his walk with the Lord, trying to trap him and pull him away from his walk with the Lord and to pull them into a life, him into a life of bondage and of sin. And that's true of every single one of us in this room. There are people in life that God wants to introduce into our lives who will be an asset to our growth as Christians. And then there will other, be other people that the devil will send into our lives or just the way that the world is. They will come into our lives and they will endeavor to change us by, number one, taking a, a beginning a relationship with us and then endeavoring to pull us away from the high thing that we're trying to live for, obedience to God, and pull us into their bondage and into their sin. God has a plan, as the old track says, for each and every one of our lives. Well, the devil has a plan too. And he has his ambassadors to pull us away from God's plan. And so we have to recognize that. In verse 63, he declares his commitment to be a companion of all who fear and obey God. And no one who fears the Lord doesn't obey God. It is the great characteristic of the fear of the Lord is that a person fears him or respects him enough to obey his word. And so... He declares his commitment to be a companion of all who fear and obey the Lord, and it is the word of God, he says, that influenced him to do so. I don't know that there is a single greater or more important decision that we make in life after we make the commitment to put our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins And after we make the commitment to follow him, even as we've sung tonight, with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. But after those two great commitments, I don't know that there's a greater decision we make in life than the decision that we make about who we will make our companions in life. Because who we make our companions in life are who we are setting up to be influencers in our life. Every single one of us, whoever we make our friends, those people, by virtue of the time that we give to them, the place of priority that we give to them in our life, the time that is spent with them, they become an influence in our lives. And any child of God, I think the psalmist is saying, all of the scriptures bear it out, that any child of God who is serious about their Christian life will not only not surround themselves with the wicked, but they will further surround themselves with godly companions who will stir them to excellence. Is excellence the standard of your Christian life? Or are you falling into this lukewarm, sickening thing of the church of Laodicea that Jesus said would characterize the church in the last days? As he wrote to the church of Philadelphia, he said they'd be small in stature, just a little bit of strength, but they didn't deny his name. They kept his word. But then over against this church that's being faithful to the Lord, small in comparison to Christendom as a whole at the time of Jesus' return, is the church of Laodicea that is busting at the seams in terms of the number of people that are in there. 
But their whole deal is all about I, me, my. The whole church is about people. It's the exaltation of man at the expense of the exaltation of God. So much so that God is on the outside. Jesus is on the outside knocking on the door to get in. And no one inside the church knows that there's something wrong with that picture. Now how spiritually blind can you be? And the reason that they were in that kind of condition, he said, is because they had become lukewarm in their relationship with the Lord. Be lukewarm about March Madness. Be lukewarm about golf. Be lukewarm about politics. Be lukewarm about anything else in life other than your relationship with the Lord. I want to be excellent in my relationship with the Lord. I want to go as far as I can, as high as I can. I want to experience as much of Christ and this Bible that I read every single day as can be experienced this side of heaven. And that needs to characterize All of our lives. And I don't say there's me and then there's you. I say that because I know I speak to a room of people who have the same passion for that. Forget this lukewarm slop that passes off as Christianity today. I'll say something else too. Never stop growing in your Christian relationship with God. And growing in your walk with the Lord and and in your Christ-likeness, and in your knowledge of the Word of God. I am so tired of running into Christians who have known the Lord 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, 5 years, and not one inch of growth in their lives beyond the first six months of their walk with the Lord. It should never happen. And it happens for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons that the psalmist brings out here is a failure to surround, not only a failure, and this has got to be a big part of it, a failure not to surround myself with wicked influences and friendships, but to fail to further then surround myself with people whose standard for their walk with the Lord is the Word of God and their standard is for excellence in their walk with the Lord. Those two things need to mark our lives. And then what happens is then we don't live off of somebody else's relationship with the Lord. Then we will find ourselves wanting to bring that same thing to other people's lives. The Bible talks about this whole dynamic of iron sharpening iron, and we all get sharpened when everybody's kind of on the page related to this. You should be very, very choosy. All of us should be very, very choosy about who we make our friends and who we make our influencers. Talk to anybody. Share the gospel with a telephone pole. Share the gospel with anyone and everyone. Develop kind of 
bridge building relationships with anyone and everyone in order to bring the life of Christ into their life. But those places where we let them cross a line and become an influencer in our life, that's reserved for a certain kind of person. Not because we're so great and we're strong and we're better than everybody else, but it's because we realize how weak we are alone and how we need that kind of challenge from other Christians. The Bible has a great deal to say about all of this in his word. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. New Testament, Paul writing to the Corinthians, he said, Don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. You could translate that very easily. Paul saying, if you don't think that the people you surround yourself with influence you, then you're kidding yourself. You are self-deceived. We are being influenced. And see, that's, that's the subtlety of it and the danger of it is we don't even realize sometimes how deeply influenced we've been by someone until we're fall, driven off of the side of the road and we're in the same ditch as they find themselves in. I think of King Solomon related to all of this, the son of King David, raised by godly parents, raised in a home where he's just surrounded by the Scriptures. And he grew into adult life, very good man, very godly man. He knew the Bible inside and out. And then he began to take multiple wives from the women of the surrounding nations. And he could have gone on, just simply gone to the Word of God and say, Lord, what does your Word say about who I marry? What does your Word say about who I bring into my home? What does your Word say about who I make my influencers? And if he had made the Word, Word of God, his guide and his instructor related to these things, he would have found that instruction in there because God had declared through the law of Moses that no king was to take wives from among the nations that surrounded the nation of Israel. And just simple obedience to God's word would have sheared away all of these influences that ended up having Solomon become one of the greatest shipwrecks in all of the Bible. He became a castaway. The man who possessed tremendous wisdom but failed to apply any of it to his own life. And there's a lot of that that goes around. Maybe he thought, well, I'm different. I'm a king. I was raised in a godly home. I was raised around the scriptures. I've even been used by God related to Proverbs and all of these different kinds of things. I'm different. I can handle these relationships. I can be an influence in them. They won't influence me. But despite all of that, his companions did end up becoming his greatest influence in life to his detriment. And his life was largely wasted. If we just simply obey God's word, it will sift through our friends, and it will sift out those who would be a bad influence in my life. Remember when you were a new Christian, those of you who look back, I look back in terms of decades now related to that, but I committed my life to the Lord. I know it's your story as well. And I begin to obey the word of God and begin to live for God. And and then I looked around and saw how many former friends didn't want anything to do with that. I understand that. 
But it was obedience to God's word that sifted them out of my life at a time when they really needed to be sifted out of my life as I was growing embryonic in my relationship with the Lord. And it was uncompromising obedience to the word of God, not perfection, but the best that I knew how. And it shifted these people out of my life at a key time. And then God's word will help me to identify those who would make good friends or good companions. And as a result, he says, it will keep me from the bonds, the psalmist says, of the wicked. Never compromise God's word in order to hold on to a friendship. Never compromise God's word in order to hold on to a friendship. Let the word of God test that friendship for what it is. Don't try to lift the weight off of their lives, the decision that they need to make about having you as a friend. If you compromise the word of God to maintain a friendship, then you are headed down the wrong path, headed down the path of Solomon. So never compromise there. And never, ever compromise the Word of God to maintain a relationship when that relationship is someone that you are considering marrying. You live obedient to the Word of God and allow that standard to put that life to the same test And then you see whether you've got someone that God wants you to marry or someone that he doesn't want you to marry at all. Never compromise to hold on to a relationship. Now, at the start of each school year in junior high and high school age, my wife Karen and I, we would encourage our daughters as they would go back to school to be wise about who they made friends with. New school year, you're making all kinds of new friends. And we just would say something like, listen, choose friends that have the same standard as our household. So that when you come and you ask us for permission to go and to be with these friends, we will be able to say yes to you. But if you choose friends that have a completely different standard for right and wrong, and, and you make those your friends, you are going to force us to say no to you the entire school year, and the responsibility will be your responsibility as a result. And one of the things that we wanted to try and teach the girls was this. You choose your friends. And choose your friends on the basis of being obedient to the Lord. Sometimes when we're in school, but it's not just in school, it afflicts us as adults. We can be so desperate to want this person as a friend, or we can be so desperate for friends that we will become a friend of anyone who shows any interest in being our friend. What happens in that case? We have turned control of our life over to other people in an area that we cannot afford to turn control over to another person. Just because someone approaches you and wants to be a friend in your life does not mean they are worthy of being a friend 
in your life in terms of influence. You don't have to make a friend of every person that wants to be your friend. We're called to be more discerning than that. We determine who we allow to be our friends and our influencers in life. Sometimes that can be absolutely empowering for a person because they've never even thought of it in that terms, that any kind of guy or gal that comes to me wants to be my friend, I have to make them my friend. No, you don't. You choose who you allow to become an influencer in your life. You make that particular decision. The Apostle Paul, he spoke to a young disciple, actually a young pastor by the name of Timothy, and he said, flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In other words, you choose your friends and your influencers, and this is what you're looking for. Second Timothy 2.22, pursue righteousness, faith, Love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. That's the kind of person that you're looking for. Sometimes people think that that passage there in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, that that's a great, put, uh, to paint that up on the wall in the junior high room or in the senior high room of the church. Those poor junior hires and senior hires, I mean, such, so influenced by their peers. I'm so glad that I'm an adult now and I'm not influenced by my friends. What we fail to realize is 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 22 was written to an adult. And more than that, it was written to a pastor. Because we all need to be that discerning in our lives. We need those around us who will stir us up to spiritual excellence. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider one another to stir up love and good gifts. And let me add once again, I've just passed by it, almost made the point, but didn't make the point, and I want to make the point. Nowhere is this more important than in the one that I choose to marry as a Christian. No one worth marrying as a Christian will ever attempt to draw you into darkness or wickedness or into compromise of God's word on any level. I saw a little card years and years ago in kind of a novelty store. It said, hit the road, toad. That encapsulates my sentiments completely related to that. If somebody wants to draw us, we are considering for marriage, and they work the entire engagement period to wear us down in our convictions or wear us down in our depth and our zeal for God and and our deepening of our relationship with God. One of the most disheartening things is to see two Christians in a church, begin to spend time with one another, and then to watch either the man man or the woman, one of them was just on fire, lit up for the Lord, so full of joy, a torrent of living water coming out of their innermost being. They get hooked up with this guy or gal, and it's gone, disappeared. Something's wrong there. 
And so very discerning in that area where we are allowing the Word of God to sift those influences in our, influencers in our life, especially related to who we marry. And I think that sometimes we can look back and maybe some of us sit here even this evening and you look at your life and you say, my life is a testimony to the truth of this passage of God's Word. I have been the worst chooser of friends all of my life. And my life is a disaster in all directions because of it. Am I doomed to go on that path and, and to just repeat this cycle all the way until my three score and ten are done and I die? Or is there a different way than this? Yes. You, tonight, as a reference point, you determine that you will choose your friends. Not your friends choosing you. And that you will choose your friends on the basis of the Word of God. And that you will obey the Word of God and allow that obedience to God's Word to either be unattractive to someone who needs to be out of your life or be attractive to the kind of person who ought to be in your life and will do spiritual good for you. All of it can switch with just understanding the importance of obedience to God's Word and what it produces in our lives and also how it influences who it is that we allow into our lives and who we don't allow into our lives. Now in verse 65, the psalmist says, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your truth. And then we'll look at these next three verses for our consideration in this section. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. And so the Word of God is the, the single great, the source of good judgment and knowledge, which, if it's heeded, will spare us unnecessary affliction. Let me just take a moment here and take a deep breath, because I know where I'm going related to this particular passage. I love this section so much. It's like a hard candy. I just want to put it in my mouth and just suck on it and savor it for a time. That word judgment in verse 66, it means good taste or discernment. In other words, the ability to discern or to judge between what is good and what is bad and what is right and what is wrong. The word knowledge in verse 66 means knowledge, understanding, wisdom. And wisdom is the who, what, where, when, why, and how of life. 
When I was in the ninth grade, yes, I was once in the ninth grade. When I was in the ninth grade, close to becoming a proud graduate of Ridgeview Junior High School in Napa, California, the Ridgeview Rebels. And if there was ever an appropriate name for a school, and a more unfortunate name for a mascot for a school than the Rebels, I don't know that I've ever heard one. But that was many years ago in the United States of America. It wasn't even perfect back then. But I remember taking a journalism class in the ninth grade, and they taught us that in the first paragraph or the first sentence of every article that you write, you need to include five of those six things. The who, what, where, when, why, and how. They explained and said the reason that you include five of those six in your first sentence is because those are the things that are the most important to your readers. Those are the questions that they're answering. So you answer those questions because they're the most important questions. And it's interesting that they are not only the most important questions related to a newspaper article, but they are the most important questions related to life itself. What to do in this situation? What to say in that situation? Who needs to be involved? What's the best time to do this? What's not the best time? Etc., etc. You think about how many decisions the average person will make in the course of our life. How many decisions do you make in a day? Don't shout out. Just driving from home to work to school or wherever you do or this or that, how many decisions? You decide when you wake up in the morning after a certain age where you're going to lean your legs over the side of the bed and just push up one half of your body at once or whether you're just going to leap from the bed when you're younger. It's a decision we make. Decision. I'm the whole, all, all day long. I mean, we'll make tens and tens and tens of thousands of, rela- of, of decisions all the way through our life. And life really is a long string of decisions, isn't it? And the interesting thing about our decisions is that they're very, very far-reaching Where a person ends up in life, the quality of their life, it's almost completely determined by the decisions that we make. And those decisions don't just impact us, but they impact so many, many other people as well. And so it's a huge responsibility. It's a crushing responsibility, the sheer amount of decision-making that we need to make in life. I'll tell you what person hasn't felt like they're not smart enough or wise enough for all of the decisions in life. There isn't a father or mother doesn't feel that. Isn't a son or a daughter that doesn't feel that. There isn't an employer or an employee that doesn't feel that. All of us feel it. And you think about how wonderful it is to be able to turn to the Bible, to God's Word, for the proper definitions of right and wrong and for the wisdom that I need in life. How overwhelming would life be if every time we faced a decision, we had to figure out on our own what is right or wrong in the situation and what we ought to do. No wonder why people are getting buried. 
under life. Imagine, now think about that. As Christians, we live in this unbelievable freedom and we live in it every single day and it's so much a part of our life that we don't even notice it anymore. That when things come across our path as Christians, our immediate reaction is to test it by the Word of God because then we know God is making the decision. And you think about how many decisions in life we say, no, you go left here instead of right because God's word says it. You go right here instead of left because God's word says it. You say this, you don't say that because this is what God's word says to do in the situation. And as we're processing all of the decisions in life in the light of the word of of God, we're just navigating life in just this beautiful way. Imagine now pulling back to when before we knew the Lord and every single decision we are trying to figure out right and wrong on our own and what to do in these thousands of decisions on our own knowing that it's going to impact everyone we love and care about around our life. I mean, that's just a crushing responsibility. And when a person surrenders to the Lordship, of Christ, the Word of God becomes the standard of what to do and what not to do and right and wrong and good and bad. An enormous amount of decision-making has been taken off of our lives. I'll tell you, it's, it, it is a remarkable thing in that alone that the Word of God does, to just be able to turn to the Word of God, say what does the Word of God say to do here, and then to do that. Otherwise, everything would be completely overwhelming. Evidently, as you notice in verse 67, the psalmist hadn't always lived life in obedience to God's Word. So he knew what it was to go astray, to live a life that was contrary to God's word, and then to experience the affliction that that kind of a life produces. And so, so many wounds in life are self-inflicted, aren't they? The result of our own decision-making before we knew what God's word tells us to do in those situations. We look back on them and we say, stupid, that's the dumbest decision. How could I ever make a decision like that? And then the psalmist in verse 66, he's thankful now that the word of God supplies him with good judgment and knowledge so as to avoid the affliction that comes with straying from God's word. And the afflictions of his former life of disobedience gave him a great appreciation for the word of God and a hunger to learn it and to apply it to his own life. Until now, he says, nothing can move me away from that. That's one of the ways that God can take a season. It can be a childhood can be all of a person's life until a person's 45 years old and then they come to know the Lord, whatever it is. Say, look at all of those wasted years. No, they're not wasted. God says he's going to work all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. It's not wasted at all. And one of the things that happens in a person that has spent some portion of our life making dumb, idiotic, 
unbelievable casualty decisions in our life before coming to know Christ and maybe even afterwards and then coming to know Christ and then to obey his word as we have experienced life on both sides. So I know what it is to live under my own wisdom. I know what it is to live under God's wisdom. And there's no comparison between the two. And the psalmist had a great appreciation for the fact that he was able to have the word of God to turn to for it to make his decisions and then to enjoy the quality of life that was his as a result of that. Nothing, again, could move him from the word of God having that kind of a place in his life because he says, I've been there, I've done that. I've already lived under my own wisdom, so I have no interest in going back and living under my own wisdom once again. And if I'm unwilling to go back and live under my own idiotic wisdom before I came to know Christ, then why in the world would I live under the wisdom of other people that don't know God? And it's an inoculation against moving away from the Word of God for the wisdom that we need in our life. And you notice what happens to a person when they do this. He tells us in verse 68, it just results in this just just dreary, miserable, regrettable life. No, that's not what he says. He said, but you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. He's already, he's known life from both sides to live it on life under his own definitions. He said it led to affliction. To obey God in his definitions only results, he said, in good every single time with no exceptions. Now you tell me what you can say that about in anything in the whole wide world. What other book or what other collection of wisdom can you look at and say, every time you obey that, You will never be disappointed. It will always produce good in your life and through your life. And the Word of God does that. And it is a tremendous thing. No regret found in giving the Word of God that kind of a place in our lives. And one of the reasons that I like this is because it it speaks to us of the fact that we don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer or the smartest person in the whole world to experience great blessing in life. All I have to do is be obedient to his word. Somebody says, what did you score on your SAT? I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Which tells you it wasn't great. You can be very, very smart and not wise. And you can be very, very dumb and wise. Wisdom completely hinges on the knowledge of God's word and obedience to his word. I don't have to be smart to know his word. I don't have to be smart to obey his word and to enjoy the greatest life a person can live in this world. I love Isaiah chapter 35 verse 8 related to this. It speaks about the kingdom age, but it certainly applies to the obedient today. Isaiah 35 verse 8, a highway shall be there and a road. 
and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks on the road, that is this highway of holiness, of obedience to God, although a fool shall not go astray. It's foolproof. It's for me. (laughs) The Word of God. All I need to know is to just obey it, and it really encourages me. I think about how much pressure has been lifted off of our shoulders because of the Word of God, no longer having to figure out every single thing in life, but all of the things that God has figured out for us, put in His Word, and we obey that, and the quality of life that unfolds as a result of that, always ending up in good, always ending up in blessing. And it's no wonder in verse 72 that the psalmist declares this alone to be worth more to him than thousands of coins in silver. That's his way of saying this knowledge, this use of the Word of God, this decision-making aspect of the Word of God is absolutely priceless to me, the psalmist was declaring, and it is. What a blessing it is to live under his definitions of right and wrong and his wisdom. Life would be completely overwhelming otherwise. Well, for some of you, I'll offer you a slight apology for just getting through two sections here tonight. But you'll have to be patient with me tonight. You say, I'm patient with you every week. I'm talking about tonight. Reminds me of the story where the husband got in an argue with his wife. She starts saying a bunch of things. He stops her. He says, every time we get in a fight like this, you get historical. She said, don't you mean hysterical? No, he said, I mean historical. You bring up everything from my past. So we don't want to get historical tonight. But what you have to forgive me of, the word of God in the hands of the Holy Spirit saved my life. It changed me. I owe everything to it. So when we come to a passage like this and I can taste the truth, I can feel these lessons in my life I know what they mean to me, and I know what they mean to you, and I want them to mean the same thing and more to everyone who's getting their first exposure to the Word of God. And so, I slow down a little bit because it means that much to me. I'd like the worship team to come forward right now and lead us in a little bit of worship as we close our service out to give us time just to meditate upon these things or other things that maybe the Lord wants us to, to bring to our attention or our memory tonight, maybe some final things He wants us to sing and worship and praise to Him tonight, or maybe some finishing touches that He wants to put related to our time gathering together as God's people today, 
Or maybe he's been speaking to you about something for a long time in your life and he wants to resurface that in your heart right now and say, let's talk about that. Let's settle that in your life right now. Yes, it is me speaking to you in that situation and I need you to acknowledge that tonight and and make the proper decision in light of the fact that I am speaking to you. Whatever the Lord wants to do in terms of receiving from us, ministering to us tonight, as we close, we pray that he will do that.